0: Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Novogratz, and this is Next with Novo. Hey, everyone. This is Mike Novogratz. Another episode, a special episode of Next with Novo. I'm here with my dear friend, Hannah Park. I have known Hannah. I don't what to tell you how long I've known her because I don't want to divulge her age. Since 2003. <laughs>
1: Since 2003.
0: <laughs> 19 years. Uh, so welcome. Thank you. Hannah was a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed uh, young woman on my trading desk when I ran a hedge fund. Um, she went to Harvard. Uh, she played the viola.
1: Violin. Ah, the <laughs> violin, violin,
0: viola. Let's start with the V.
1: Oh no! There's a whole universe of viola jokes. Uh, and
0: she was a star, <laughs> star trader. Uh, she's got a story that one day I'm sure will be made into a movie. Uh, it's not all good, uh, but if you look by the smile on her face, it is It is ending well. Uh, so Hannah, tell us a little bit about you, born and raised.
1: Yeah. Um, let's see. I was born in Korea, in Seoul, and um, I would say if I were to characterize it kind of differently. I was born into a family that experienced a lot of losses. Um, So, you know, my mother came from a a wealthy family, but her father had pretty much lost everything, all his wealth, um, through his own decisions. But I think it was actually related to a lot of trauma that he went through during His years of um, growing up in Japan, you know, there's a lot of family history behind it. My father also came from a family who lost all their wealth, but for different reasons uh, from the Japanese through the um, kind of repossession of the land that happened in the colonial period. So, you know, both of them got together and formed a family, but it wasn't, um, it was just based on a lot of trauma and losses. So, how that showed up in my family was it was you know, all about the future. Um, so, you know, in our culture right now, especially for those who meditate, it's the present is what matters, right? Stay in the present, focus on the present. None of that even existed. I, if you asked me what that meant, I couldn't have answered because it was all about living for uh, the better future, better life.
0: And that showed up demanding grades. How did that show up?
1: You know, it was actually... Classic Korean tiger mom. It it was more subtle than that, right? Because uh, my parents were too busy just trying to live their own lives, but there was a certain level of expectations. So one example is, you know, I I was precocious as a child. I, uh, like one day, apparently, I just started reading at the age of three. And very quickly, I was reading like literature, not um, like children's books. And so my mother started bringing home books by the truckload. And these are like Russian literature at the age of eight, (laughs) like (laughs) Anna Karenina.
0: (laughs) Anna Karenina at age eight. Wow.
1: Yeah. Or like there was a Lady Chatterley's lover, right? That completely inappropriate. (laughs) So that's how I learned about sex. Um, But, you know, it was that level of expectation, like, okay, you're smart. We know you'll go far, and we do not expect anything less than extraordinary. And I internalized that pretty quickly because, as a child growing up in Korea, I don't know. You just like there's a word in the Korean culture called nunchi, and there's it's really hard to translate. It's kind of like your visual field or sight, but what it really means is reading the room. You're always reading the room. And that's what happens in uh, places of inequity, right? Like when you're the weaker power in the global, you know, countries being possessed, you learn to read the room and figure out where you sit in the power structure. And that happened all the way down to the individual level in that country, especially when I was growing up in the '80s. Um, so it was the same thing. Like, what do these people want from me? Like, what's expected of me? So that meant, you know, anything getting, you know, in Korea's school system. They post what your ranking is after you take an exam. So anything less than number one was <laughs> just unthinkable. Not because I was going to get yelled at, because that's that was the bar that was set.
0: So interesting. Uh, probably, and your parents didn't do that well themselves.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think they did that well, but it was couched in the hope right Right. that I want better for my children and now that I have a child I know what that feels like Um, but you always have to kind of temper it with everything else what's good for the child and none of that existed back then
0: I think my kids were lucky because I was kind of so wrapped up in my own life I was like I'm just hoping they're okay
1: (laughs) It I call well. it light touch
0: parenting. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. have to kind of focus on yourself so you don't put too much pressure on your kids.
1: Yeah, that did not exist. Did so I? you
0: came to the U.S. at what age?
1: So um, yeah, part of that, like looking to the future, was going to the U.S. because the U.S. represented everything. You know, the the, the American dream, of course, but like where anything can happen. So we basically devoted. All our efforts into making that immigration happen, which is very difficult back then they had a quota in Korea um so at thirteen we finally made it to Los Angeles and when you
0: said we you your your family you your
1: my older sister and my parents and the four you guys of us, felt like a we we felt like a we yeah um looking back, I don't know why, but now yeah um yeah, so i I remember landing in l a and feeling just utterly lost like we had these huge bags we had a cello and a violin and you know I I didn't know the alphabet um they didn't have the uh, extracurricular tutoring the way they do now in Korea so I didn't know the language and I was you know like smack in the middle of puberty um so I show up to school and (laughs) everybody's blonde and blue-eyed and there I am like completely lost and it threw me into kind of a tailspin for a little while and then I, I decided okay the future doesn't exist if I get lost here so I'm gonna find my way out I'm gonna master this stupid language <laughs> of English um, and I'm gonna get myself to Harvard.
0: And how long did it take you to learn English?
1: Um, I started dreaming in English, which was a sign to me that I actually had to learn the language in about six to seven months. Wow.
0: Yeah, I I spent seven years in Hong Kong and have about seven words in my vocabulary.
1: Well, you're much older. <laughs> I it's 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 a little bit different, I think.
0: Six or seven months to become fluent is pretty impressive. Um I guess it was that a necessity, otherwise you wouldn't be able to kiss a boy.
1: It w- Oh, there was that, too. I did have a big crush on a boy (laughs) who probably never knew I existed. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was really, it felt like life or death, right? Because this is everything that we lived for for so many years. And There's that we again. Yeah.
0: Um, You went to school in California?
1: In California, in Glendale. um, I went to Glendale High School, which uh, my graduating class had nearly 1,000 kids. It was a large public school, yeah.
0: And you were top.
1: I was a valedictorian. (laughs) Do
0: you remember your speech?
1: No. I actually kind of winged it, which I regret terribly. But I think it was out of fear because I I really didn't know what to say.
0: You got into Harvard. You wrote a book.
1: Yeah. um, Harvard was difficult because, you know, like when you are so set on some goal that's so tangible for a certain set of time, which was six years for me between seventh grade and, you know, end of high school – And you actually get there, like there's a really deep sense of purposelessness and depression that hits you. And in my case, it was exacerbated by the the pure culture shock and really the socioeconomic uh, background difference. Because my freshman year roommate um, was a really nice young lady, but like a wealthy expatriate from Hong Kong and you know she had gone she had gone to one of the prestigious boarding schools and everything was so easy for her because it's not so much about the academics although you know that's a big part of it it's about mastering the schedule what it means to live by yourself what it means to socialize and not feel lost and I couldn't manage any of it it was impossible so I fell into deep deep dark depression and I had arrived with this purpose of becoming a surgeon that was my goal
0: um it's shocking how many people go to college, at least pre-med. <laughs> like, probably a third of people I'm pre-med.
1: Probably about 80% of Asian people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, there's a deep cultural tie to that because um, the Asian histories have such uh, instability behind it, right? A lot of wars and um, tragic things happening, that if you just have that license, if you're acknowledged externally, by society as being qualified at this thing, then no one can bring you down. I think it's that idea. Um, so my family bought into it, I bought into it. But I arrived there and I realized very quickly I cannot do four more years of school after college. Um, I couldn't afford it. My parents were um, literally going to loan sharks to to get me through college. Um, I was undocumented this, this whole time actually. <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you. No.
0: Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> I had an undocumented immigrant.
1: I mean, I am now. I'm a full American now. Um, but yeah, I was un- undocumented for a long time because that was a decision that we as a family made after about six months when the visa expired. Like, right. do we stay here? Yes. Um, was that
0: scary back then or less yeah, scary? It yeah,
1: scary. it was very scary. And, you know, the news flow is not the way it is now. Like, you just don't know what's going on. So as a like a 14, 15-year-old, you hear a random thing about something that Governor Wilson is doing. And it's like oh, wait, does that mean they're going to actually come find us? Um, So it was that kind of, you know, baseline level of anxiety that you're always living with. And also you just learn to like not talk about yourself, right? Because you just don't know where it's going to end up. Um, You realize that DMV and INS are very scary places. (laughs) With long lines, and you try not to go there. Um, so, yeah, all these things that, that, God, I had forgotten about for a long time. They're coming back to me now. It just, it breeds, like, a complete loss of safety.
0: Right. You got out of Harvard, your yeah. first job.
1: Um, I got out of what My senior year, after realizing I wasn't going to be a doctor, I uh, settled on majoring in psychology. Um, to be honest, because it seemed like the easiest A to get.
0: <laughs> Still is.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, you know, there, there are ways for me to make it more challenging for myself. I was too depressed, I think. Um, but, yeah, I didn't know what to do, and all these kids were going through interview processes uh, with consulting firms, investment banks, and... Um, I was like, okay, I guess I'll go through it, why not? I know nothing about Wall Street, I know nothing about investment banking, um, but they seem to be looking for smart kids, so maybe I'll be good enough. So I went through the interview process and ended up somehow with one of the most quantitative jobs on Wall Street at uh, Morgan Stanley uh, Fixed Income Derivatives. So that's where I learned what bonds were. (laughs) And um, that's where I really learned what markets are, and how fun trading can be.
0: So you joined me when?
1: I joined you, oh, and then I made one more pit stop at Goldman Sachs in equity derivatives, basically uh, structuring and trading things that you can't trade, <laughs> like correlation risk.
0: So you're like gathering very nice Girl Scout patches, for yes. Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs.
1: I mean, great looking resume and on the Fortress. exterior. Yes. And then And then Fortress, and um, yeah, I still remember our first interview. <laughs> you probably don't.
0: I don't. But
1: <laughs> you gave me an IQ question. <laughs> uh,
0: did you pass? I
1: did pass. Yeah, <laughs> thank God. Um, and then we had dinner, and you told me not to come work for you. You said, "Well, I don't know about this whole thing we got going here. If I were you, I would just stay at Coleman and rise through the ranks."
0: It's the old reverse psychology.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, it worked. I was like, "Why is this guy telling me this? I don't. I have to go and figure this out." <laughs>
0: And so you were with us for
1: about um six years six
0: years yeah very successful made lots of money had could he- have made more had, had health, <laughs> thanks mike had health issues
1: <laughs> yeah it was it was tough six years um as you know i was working overnight from new york um ah. covering the asia markets and um It was like the clash of what my body could handle and what I really wanted to do. Because, you know, if I learned what markets were at at Morgan Stanley, Fortress was where I really discovered my love for the markets. And, um, you know, macro investing is different, right? Because it is very narrative driven. You get to learn a little bit about everything. And with all this stuff about Russia and Ukraine, like there's a baseline knowledge level that I can apply even now from those days. Um,
0: Macro people are... Great generalists. Yes. We know a little bit about everything.
1: Great at cocktail parties. Yes, <laughs> um, but you know, I felt like I could. I also had the capacity to go in depth and just really like keep possessing all this knowledge. Which, I, I guess, I'm, I'm a hoarder of knowledge, which I really loved, and you can apply it to the markets and you know hopefully make money. Um, And But, you know, my body couldn't handle it, and I refused to give in to that. I refused to acknowledge it until it just completely broke down. And you remember I had to take nearly a year off and go to India. (laughs) to. was my strategy, go to
0: India, learn to meditate. Yeah, yeah. I was always sure that it was psychosomatic. Not that it wasn't real, that it was stress, that you didn't have to deal with stress. Um,
1: There was truth to that, yeah.
0: But it wasn't completely true. It
1: wasn't. I mean, you know, since then I've gotten many diagnoses with... You know many acronyms which are all real um but as we'll touch on later i think trauma was actually the big linchpin that held everything together and released everything um which i didn't know back then so i refused to admit it
0: so we parted ways with a hug i gave you the advice i was like listen you're really talented at these things yeah. this one piece of the business that you want to do which is what i did your body doesn't want you to do it yeah and so go do something else you're like there's thousand paths to buddhahood in life go find another path and i set you on your way
1: i didn't listen
0: (laughs) and it was five years later i'm like reading the newspaper so take us on that five year journey
1: yeah um i remember that advice you gave me and i thought no he doesn't get it (laughs) I thought there's a way to do this more efficiently, right? And that, if you remember, that was a time when um, the black box algorithmic trading was really picking up. Yep. It, it's not that I was interested in pursuing uh, quant models, which which was never the thing that we were doing at Fortress, right? Um, segments were doing it, but it's not my segment. Um, I decided there's a like the weakness with macro investing is that there, it is very narrative based. It is very susceptible to human biases, which, you know, have been documented extensively. So let's optimize for those biases by introducing some quantitative elements to it. So that's what I set to work on. And I had a whole business plan of, you know, having this really uh, women run, employee equity held. Um, like a beautiful model of how to make money and be happy with it,
0: so what started off with great intention, yeah, with a beautiful idea turned into a spiral of hell,
1: yeah, I can't go into too much detail because my my uh federal defender who worked very hard on my case will not be happy with me um. Let's just say, you know, I arrived at a model that I felt good about, but there was a lot of, I think, hubris attached to it, too. And you know what markets are, like, they level your arrogance down like nothing else out there. And you have to understand that very well on a daily basis. And I hadn't. And I was actually kind of really desperate to prove my worth and get that external validation. Like, yes, I am as good as Mike Novogratz. Like, I am, I am as smart. Like, I belong here. I have the right to be here. And so I moved too fast, lost a whole lot of money at some point, fairly early on, actually, when the model wasn't fully developed. Um, but, you know, I had the love and support of a lot of people in my life, my family, friends who had given me their money to invest um, informally. At that point, I mean, that was probably already verging on illegal to begin with, but I didn't know. And I didn't care to find out. Um, And then once I lost money, I remember thinking, what do I do? And having this voice in me telling me, what do you mean? What do you do? The choice is very clear. You have to make this back. That's it. You owe these people this money. You owe yourself this money and your career track. And you have to make it back. It's that simple. So I double down in every sense, and you know how leverage works. It's uh, at some point it becomes
0: a vicious spiral,
1: impossible, and it doesn't stop until you stop. Um, And I didn't stop and I have a lot of grit, I have a lot of...
0: (laughs) Five years.
1: Determination, it went on for five years.
0: It grounds you almost to a pulp.
1: Yeah, I was probably sleeping about somewhere between two to four hours every night for five years. Um, You know, when the DA ran the data, you could tell my trading system never shut down. Like I would log in and out because I was in a a cab, in a taxi or um, the system would log me out to refresh, but by golly, I gave it my all in every sense. Meanwhile, no one knew this was going on. Um, I had told not a soul. And so,
0: the inability to tell the truth—yeah—to admit that you weren't perfect, that you weren't succeeding, that you weren't an A student at Harvard or the valedictorian—that um, became just a curse in so many ways.
1: Yeah I mean for a long time you know while I was sitting in prison every minute of the every day that I spent there I thought about this what are the choices that I made that got me there that I you know cuz these are all the levers that I was pulling no one was making me make these choices and I realized at some point it wasn't that I wanted to lie to preserve my perfect image although there is that it was utter Fear, sheer fear. Survival. Survival. It was truly life or death. It felt like if I didn't keep going and turn this around, that somehow I would metaphorically die or I would have to kill myself because I could not live with the results.
0: When the FBI showed up and took your computers and or or the, was it relief? Was it...
1: Yeah. Um, You know, people have asked me, didn't you know that was going to happen? You know, the federal agents, um, there were about 10 of them that showed up. Um, Local cops, you know, the whole entourage. So they asked me, like, didn't you know that was going to be the outcome? Honest to God, no, I did not. Because the whole time, every minute of five years, all of my brain cells were really devoted to making the money back, not the consequence of what's going to actually happen. Like, you know, you look at all these Ponzi scheme stories, right? And the question that people, very reasonable question that people ask was, well, what was this person's exit strategy? Like, how are they going to get out of this situation? And there is never an exit strategy, and there certainly wasn't one for me. Um, So when they came knocking down, one, it was a surprise, but, you know, it was that moment of dissociation, like, the thing that was, the the big dread, the monster that was always chasing me has shown up. It's here. And in that sense, it was relief. But it's also that, does this mean I now have to die? And what does that mean? I don't know, but that was the question that was running over and over in my mind.
0: So I remember the first, I, 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 we, I don't know how many days after you got arrested, you came to my house for a drink or coffee. And I heard your story, and I was like, "Whoa," because <laughs> I had left you, and you were this bright, shining woman on her way to the next chapter. Yeah, and I, to me, it was okay. I know this person, and you know, people from our desk called me, they said, "You shouldn't be nice to her. You should yeah. worry about her victims." And I was like, "Her friends, can, her victims' friends can worry about them. I'm just going to see if I can be helpful." Um, but I remember you were just bewildered. And your head was spinning too much to even be rational. Uh, But over the few meetings, I kept trying to, you know, be cliche because what else are you going to say? Hey, this is not the end of your life. You know, you've got a chance to write a whole new chapter. All the things you should say, but I'm sure rang completely hollow Uh, And so talk about getting through that first couple, because unfortunately, these things don't happen quick. Yeah. It's a couple years before the processing and the evidence and the plea, even though you were pleading guilty. Yeah. uh,
1: Didn't fight it the whole time at all. But yeah, it still took a year and a month between the time I got arrested and um, I was sentenced. Um, Yeah, it's a long process. I think the whole process was truly bewildering because i never knew i could feel such shame i i was aware of what shame was i mean shame is and i really apologize to my fellow koreans out there but it's really a deep part of our culture um losing face like these phrases that don't naturally exist in the western culture is an inherent us catholics have it too (laughs) okay catholics jews and
0: koreans (laughs)
1: Korean Catholic, man. Shame-based cultures. I'm married to a Korean Catholic, so I know. that's bad. That is bad. Yeah, so I I was um, dying every day of shame. And there were times when I couldn't get out of bed for multiple days because the act of just moving and going out of bed somehow felt like I'm affirming my existence as a human being, and I felt like I didn't deserve it. And as soon as I would wake up, I would run through the names and the the hardships that, you know, my victims were experiencing. And these are people that I loved. And, you know, I I knew what kind of confusion confusion they must be feeling. Because how can you hurt and lie to the people that you love like this? And I had no explanation for them.
0: I remember sitting in your sentencing and, you know, trying to be supportive and crossing my fingers that you got a lighter sentence and listening to the victim's statements. Yeah. And... They were just painful, yeah. And I was watching you f- suffer in that, um, but I was suffering for the victims. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, y- this judge is going to throw the book at her because yeah. it 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 really puts it into context." Uh, that half hour, which was just—I mean, I building brutal.
1: Was it only a half hour? It felt so long. <laughs> yeah, I
0: don't know. Maybe it was more than a half hour. You were um, you were pregnant. I that's a,
1: that's a whole side story. Pregnant. Yeah, that is. A <laughs> um, um, yeah. I, I blame it on you because you told me to go be nice to my husband and I'm pregnant. That's, true. <laughs> that's That's actually, no, what happened was um, I got a plea uh, offer from the uh, um, prosecutor's office, which was nine to 12 years. And that, Felt like a death sentence. Death sentence. I, it was unimaginable. Like, you know, they throw around these number of years. And later on, I, I ran into a lot of people with that kind of sentence and longer.
0: And just so people know, if you get a federal sentence of nine years, the minimum you spend is 85% of it. Yes. There's no like, oh, parole after two years for good behavior. That's right. Like, so it's nine years you're spending 7.6 at a minimum
1: yeah it's a very simple and straightforward calculation. There's no pearl board. there's none of that um so um we probably had uh the world is going to end sex that day, and I think that's the day I got pregnant
0: <laughs> the one time
1: the one time. Um, but the way I found out I was pregnant was on my way to uh, being prepped for a brain surgery because I also found out in that same period that I had a very large brain aneurysm that if it uh, ruptured and it was very large, um, it would have caused uh, death or you know at least severe disability.
0: All right. So when it, when it rains, it pours
1: yeah that was some six month period between uh time of being arrested and you know all of that
0: i remember the judge left the chambers and i was sitting next to a woman who was just watching yeah. she happened to be korean though she wasn't a, a relative she was
1: a college friend yeah uh
0: who had been a uh, da as well and she said there's no chance she gets below six years uh none but then when the judge left she said that never happens. They already have made their mind up. And so a glimmer of hope, and she came back with thirty six months,
1: yeah, thirty six months, three years. Um,
0: she grabbed me like very excited. We, we had just met, but we were friends for that moment,
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm so thankful to her for um coming to the sentencing hearing. Um yeah, it you know, it's funny because I have a lot of perspectives on this. At that moment, it was, of course, devastating because I was seven months pregnant, and it was an unplanned pregnancy. Um, but looking back, and especially while I was serving time, I realized that's a, I really, I, like I'm very grateful to many forces at work for that sentence, because it could have been a whole lot worse. It's, it's a reflective of how screwed up our criminal justice system is, that they hand out these years like candy. And um,
0: now you told me when you were uh, upstate that you met plenty of people who were seven years, eight years, whose crime seemed less than yours, uh, and they got eight years, nothing they can do about it.
1: Definitely less. And the more you fight your case because you feel that you're innocent or you got unfairly charged, the more screwed you get. Um, the system definitely punishes you for fighting it. So there are people who went all the way to trial because she was innocent, one friend of mine, by all accounts. Um and they threw a lot of charges at her and the, the uh jury cleared of all charges except for one. And for that one minor charge, the judge gave her six and a half years. Crazy. And she's a doctor, so it was good. Yeah.
0: So you're in jail. How did you are in prison? Yeah. How did you past time? How did you spend your time? How did you survive? It, and, and, and there's another story, right? You yeah. you were almost going to like hotel hell where people go to die and you were at last minute uh,
1: rerouted rerouted
0: yeah. to a much nicer camp. <laughs>
1: um, well, nicer in terms of security level, but yeah, the, um, I nearly ended up in Texas because of some of my medical conditions um, they have, I think, they probably look at it as an algorithm. If you have XYZ conditions, then yes, it doesn't matter where you live. Um, send them to that one medical facility in Texas. Um, so thankfully, I was able to get rerouted because my medical conditions were not, they were chronic but not dire. Um, and so I ended up in the uh, Minimum Security Federal Prison Camp in Danbury, uh, which was made famous by "Oranges the New Black. <laughs> Um, and you know it's a how
0: close is it to is the new black?
1: Well, I've only seen the first season, and that was a long time ago, like long before the idea of prison ever became real. um, I would say about ten to fifteen percent of it like there are you know elements of truth in it, but of course, for narrative telling, it gets um they take it on a journey <laughs> um
0: but fights. No fights. No fights.
1: Except fights once in a while.
0: Girlfriends? Do, I mean, is there a lot of...
1: Yes, girlfriends. A lot of girlfriends. Um, a lot of community building. Just beautiful, beautiful communities. And you have to remember, you know, these are women who come from very difficult life circumstances. A lot of them have had children at young ages. And we're talking about like 13, 14, right? Not even 18, 19. Um, a lot of women in their 30s are grandmothers, so I showed up at 42 with a 15-month-old, and people are just very confused. <laughs> um, and, you know, people, like, such smart women who just never got a shot at any kind of education. So they get pregnant, drop out of school, or they just drop out of school because, you um, their inner city schools, where it's just not interesting, or that's what their friends do. Like a lot of different life reasons, a lot of abuse and trauma, um, rape, sexual abuse, you know, just the most horrific stories you'll ever imagine. But somehow these women lived through it all and they, they stayed, they preserved their beauty in different ways. Not to say they're not annoying to live with. That's a whole different story, right? Cause you shove hundred and let's say twenty women, or actually it's more like two hundred women, in this warehouse, because that's what it is, that is full of mold and such old dilapidated, you know, buildings. It's not gonna be pleasant, but you know, they still manage to form communities of kind of loving, supportive relationships. And that was really um, that's what sustained all of us, not just me. But yeah, I mean, I um, left my 15-month-old at home with my husband and my mother, elderly mother, and um, surrendered myself. And they strip you on every level. You know, you have to take all your clothes off. You can, you choose to donate it or you they ship it back home. And they give you um, men's prison uniform. So you're kind of swimming in it. Um, they give you a very stra- scratchy blanket, no pillow. And you hold that thing and you walk up this really steep hill leading to the prison camp. They don't even escort you because we're such low security that they don't think we're going to run away. There's no concern over that. And you go in there and you're supposed to somehow find your way. So, you know, some parts of it reminded me of Harvard because like, in some sense it was the same thing but man you r- realize very quickly what it means to have nothing and figure out how to survive really quickly
0: were you a celebrity because of your harvard education or did that not matter
1: no i mean i didn't want to talk about talk about myself in any way harvard whatever it just it didn't matter to me and i was also carrying so much shame um, that I was convinced that if people knew anything about me, they would just see me as this monster and, you know, I would have a hard time surviving. Um, eventually, people find out and they were kind of amused about it. And, you know, <laughs> I wrote a lot of letters for people um, fighting their cases. And you
0: tutored and people.
1: I, yeah, I became a tutor and a GED tutor. So GED is a big thing because a lot of people didn't finish high school. Um, big, I would say majority of the people actually hadn't finished high school, especially for men, less so for women. Um, and one of the requirements, one of the few requirements is literacy, literacy requirement as defined by the GED test. Um, so I tutored, there's one memorable student who uh, was 60 years old, and she had dropped out and gotten married, I think at 15 or something like that, I don't even know if that's legal, but to some really early age, right? And just lived an extremely difficult life. And it was really important for her to show her granddaughter that even at her age, that she could do this. Um, So I worked with her. She was the hardest working student I'd ever met in my life. Um, And she passed by the end. Wow. So I, I think, you know, the big lesson that I learned was there's beauty to be found Anywhere, everywhere, in anybody. Um, So when I'm up
0: there, I visit you. I had always had this narrative in my head. I was like, fuck her Korean parents, because they put so much pressure on a kid that she had all this pressure that she just couldn't tell the truth because she couldn't disappoint. Like, that. that was my narrative. And to be honest, you know, my wife, who's a wonderful lady, and my lawyer... They were like, did it make a lot of sense to them? And they were like, why are you spending time with this woman who's like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And then you tell me, oh, by the way, you know, I should have maybe told my lawyer this, but, you know, when I was five or six years old, I was kidnapped and, and molested and raped uh, as a young kid in Korea. And I never really thought that was important to talk about. <laughs> and I was like, "Duh." And I remember as soon as I like told my wife and my my attorney that my friend, uh, they're like, "Oh, it makes all the sense in the world now." And I was like, "What do you women know that I don't know?" <laughs> um, but they were just so much more empathetic, sympathetic, and understanding. Mm. Um, and I was like, "How dumb could you be not telling people that?" And yeah. so talk about—I mean, you know, you talk about what you want to talk about, but that when that dawned on you that maybe some of your behavior isn't just being a Korean Korean under pressure, but there's deep, brutal drama.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, nowadays, I think they uh, have a new diagnosis called complex PTSD. Um, so there is that clinical side of it. But yeah, the whole legal process. I, I did tell my lawyer at some point And I said, oh, Julia, I don't know if this matters. Maybe you should know. But I don't even know why I'm wasting my time telling you this. So I told her the story. And she was a little bit apoplectic for a bit. Um, but it was too late in the process for it to like for inform anything meaningfully. And I don't think, cr- frankly, the criminal justice system would have cared at all. That's not our system. Um, but telling you that story was actually really, um, I think it started this whole healing process for me because I saw the way you reacted and I realized, oh wait, maybe this isn't right. Maybe I shouldn't be discounting this as if it were nothing. So what happened was uh, I was probably around the age of six in Korea, of course. I um, My sister and I were taking piano lessons and my sister's lesson was happening after mine. And um, I'm nearly four years younger, and I had this habit of always tagging along with her to everything. Like, I found her friends so much more interesting than mine um, and sophisticated. And she was annoyed, rightly so, right? So she was like, just please, for once, go home. And by all accounts, it was a safe neighborhood. Like, no one ever thought of safety. So it was dusk time. I'm walking home with my piano bag swinging, And this young guy, like looking back, I'm guessing he was maybe like 19, 20, fairly young, kind of gestured me over and, you know, asked for help to find this apartment complex, which was a little bit into the mountains. And I thought, oh, I can be helpful. Yes, of course, I can help you. And pretty quickly into that act of walking with him, he um, drew me really tightly close to him. And said, I have a knife, and I'm going to take you somewhere. And if anybody stops us, I'm your brother. And if you do anything, even think about running away, I'm going to kill you. And he gestured inside his pocket of something that looked kind of lengthy. So we took a walk for a long time, and I remember going through this mental calculation of, is that a knife or is that not a knife? And is he bluffing me or not? And you know, I have a four and a half year old now, and if I think about how crazy that is for a kid that young age to try to make that calculation, and in the end, I realize I don't—I'm too scared. I just can't do it, and I don't think I even run that fast. Like I'm a bad runner; I lost every single race in (laughs) in my neighborhood. So I made a decision to just stay to save my life, and I actually felt so ashamed about that. At that point and afterwards, forever. Because I felt like I brought that upon myself. Um, That you didn't have the courage to run. Yeah, I didn't have the courage to run away. And I could have saved myself, but I didn't. And so it just unfolded, you know. Um, It started with, like, some very lurid acts of molestation when, you know, devolve into full-on rape. And it lasted, I think, majority of that night. And there was one point... Um, when he was raping me, I was lying down on this kind of hilly mountainous place and I was looking up, looking up at the sky and I decided, you know what? I'm not in my body anymore. I'm actually the thing that's looking down at me from the sky. And as long as my perspective shifts like that, as long as I'm not in my body anymore, then this actually isn't happening to me. And I didn't remember this until much later uh, when I started therapy to treat uh, PTSD. Um, And from that point on, I started managing him, right? He kept asking me, does this feel good? Does this feel good? And I kept saying, yes, this feels really good. And again, like I remember recalling all of that later on, like in different parts of my life and feeling just so ashamed and that probably colored you know any like concept of sex for a really long time Um, but eventually he got kind of tired of it I think because I was just too young like it was hard for him to do anything with me. You were six? I I was yeah around that age. Um, So he told me we started walking back down kind of close to the point where he um, took me and he asked me what my sister's name was And I told him, and he said, okay, well, I know what school she goes to, I know what her name is. Um, I can easily find out where you live. So if you tell anybody about me or what I look like, then I will kill your sister with this knife that I'm holding. And so that's when I realized, oh shit. So not, this guy means business. Like I, I can't endanger my family like this. So that whole walk home, I was trying to figure out what to tell my mother because I didn't want to worry her, but clearly I'd been gone all night. Um, And this is where my memory gets very fuzzy, but I ran into my mother on the street who was, you know, out of her mind. And she took me into the bathroom and just started scrubbing me, scrubbing me, scrubbing me. And I think she had asked me enough questions and I answered with enough details that she had figured out what had happened. And that's when I realized, oh, I am not clean anymore and I'm never going to be clean again. And there's something really wrong with me and I, I'm unlovable. And I'm putting words to this and, you know, as somebody hearing it on the other end, you're thinking, you know, of course that's not true. But these were feelings, right? These were right. realizations that I was happening, uh, that I, connections that I was making non-verbally without words so yeah I carried all those things with me all my life and very soon after my family the way my family dealt with this extreme extreme trauma was to pretend as if it never happened so um you know I that night I was taken to kind of an emergency doctor's home examined things seemed to be okay so we never ever discussed it ever again
0: no police report no
1: nothing and and Honestly, I think my parents didn't have the language or the tools to process it themselves. I mean, you know, if I think about it as a mother, it's beyond traumatizing. Um, This is when, like, Liam Neeson in Taken comes to mind. (laughs) And so, yeah, I get it. Like, I get why they couldn't dare talk about it, because they couldn't admit it to themselves that this horrible thing happened.
0: So did you put it away in the back of your brain and go on and move to the U.S., get into Harvard. Like, did you ever think about this when you were at Harvard or when you were at Fortress? or you were? In-
1: I actually wrote about it in my uh, college application in an essay. And I wrote it as a survivor's tale. And I guess it was kind of ahead of the time because, you know, nowadays Me Too movement and all of that. Um, but I felt really bad about it because I felt like I was somehow using my trauma as a tool to make me into a special person. And my general approach about it was, well, I was so young, is it really rape? And I lived, it didn't leave any marks on me. Um, It really had nothing to do with anything in my life. So, I mean, it it was a bad thing that happened, so I don't know, it must have done something, but for God's sake, I can't figure it out. And this continued all throughout my life, you know, through my um, years of compartmentalizing and dissociating from myself um, to lie about the money losses to years of, you know, going through the criminal legal proceedings, all of it. Like I truly thought this was a discreet thing that happened in my life and it didn't impact me in any kind of understandable manner.
0: So you get out of jail, I remember, the first day. It was exciting, thankfully, for for COVID. In some yeah. ways, you got out early, you had a house arrest. Um, and you fell into a depression. Like,
1: yeah, that was unexpected. Um, you know, when you're in prison where you have nothing and you have no resources, And it's a miserable environment in every way. And, you know, the saving grace is what I talked about, the relationship with other women. Um, But you dream, right? You dream of the day you're walking out that door and you go back to the loving arms of your family community if you have them. Some people don't. Um, That's the other side to this. For me, I thought, okay, I'm finally going home to become a mother, to be a wife, to be a daughter, to... Pay things forward to to you know atone for all that I've done wrong, to make meaning out of my life. And when my husband came to pick me up because the release process itself was very dramatic, (laughs) because of COVID, um, it was last minute. There was a literal rainbow hanging in the sky. We're driving into the rainbow, and I remember thinking, "This is it. I second chance. This is the second chance that." I am so lucky to have, and this feeling, this, this, my heart was exploding with gratitude, and I said, I'm going to hang on to this, and this is how I'm going to live my life. Well, fast forward about six months, (laughs) I'm stuck in the deepest, darkest, not even a tunnel, it was a grave in my head that I dug for myself, and it's hard to describe. I mean, I went to a period of, um, suicidal ideation during the pre-trial phase before I got pregnant and that was a very concrete phase where like I was trying to figure out like if I'm going to really kill myself how would I do it this was much more encompassing like I couldn't think straight I couldn't see straight Um, my kind the hearted therapist kept kind of making a laundry list of all the things that I still had to live for you know, the most tangible thing in front of me is my child, right? Who's this beautiful thing who doesn't know anything other than beautiful things in life yet. But I was really tired. Like, I was tired of this life. I was tired of fighting. I was tired of um, feeling just such shame. I was tired of being me, and I needed it to stop.
0: You know, I remember the first time you at my house, up- I was you're never going to pay your victims back, but you can pay it forward. And that was like my cheesy. I was full of good cheesy <laughs> <laughs> <no> gr- grandmother <laughs> advice. Um, and so now you're full of life. You've yeah. you got a big smile. You lost a ton of weight.
1: Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did gain 75 pounds while I was pregnant. <laughs> yeah. I didn't help.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've got your life back. Yeah. And so... It makes me really happy, and I've got a big smile. That process from ready to say, I don't deserve to live, I yeah. don't want to live, I don't want to be me anymore, to now. Why, how? Yeah. Talk us through that.
1: Um, so it wasn't forever ago that I was in that grave that I dug for myself. It was, um, I think you and I had that conversation maybe in February of... Yeah. Um. Last year. Last year, 2021, yeah. So it's been nearly a year, a little over a year. (sighs) I was so tired that I was uh, ready to make that one last effort. If for nothing else, for the sake of my child. And so um, I started... um, a set of therapies um, specifically to treat trauma and uh, PTSD and in that you know there's a lot of kind of reflection and narrative forming and investigation of what's going on internally um, what arose interestingly I don't know if you're familiar with um, IFS internal family systems but um, it's a therapeutic modality that talks a lot about how we naturally have parts in ourselves, not just people with mental illnesses. And those parts are all good, right? They all serve their own roles and uh, places in them, in their lives. But when you have trauma, um, a part or some parts can break off and start serving a function above and beyond what they were meant for. So typically, a protector figure arises really strongly. And in my case, I found out in a really kind of deep way that I had literally locked away my inner child the moment that rape happened. Um, And the protector figure, who even has a name, like I named my parts, and her name is Kate, and she's this kind of, you know, older woman with a severe bun, super smart, but like really rigid, right, they're they're, um, right ways to do things and wrong ways to do things. And so she's the one who said, no, you child cannot survive this. So you need to just go and rest, locked away in a mausoleum. And Kate became the self that was dominating my life in every way. She's the one with the plan. She's the one with kind of a very, you know, uh, flexible and long and short view of strategies and how to live life, very critical and judgmental of the self and other people. And I found out that she was the one who was really tired. Like, that was a lot of work for somebody to do that for 40 years. Um, So it was going through that process of recognizing that and saying, thank you for saving me. Thank you for protecting me. But you can rest now. And I can do that hard work of figuring out who I am. And getting my child back. So the therapist that I work with always told me to look at Gabriel, my son, and kind of um, interact with him as if I'm my own inner child not his mother, somebody who knows better. And that was actually really therapeutic because I realized how much I had lost. Like I had lost all sense of joy. I had lost all sense of what it means to play, right? And that was devastating, and I didn't even know. And what I realized was all that happened because that huge event, that traumatic event, utterly robbed me of any sense of safety in life. Like, that kind of thing could happen to me at any minute. Somebody can pull the rug out at any second. And what I had to do is do everything in my life to protect myself by building a certain image, by making a lot of money, by gathering power in whatever way I can. And until I get to that point, I am not safe. I could die. And anybody around me could die in the same way. That was the message message that I carried from that trauma. And that's huge. And I made that connection. And when I made that connection, holy shit, I realized, wow, I've been living with this sense of danger and you know, lack of safety my entire life. That's the and place. And that I... allow
0: you to just let it go?
1: No, it was a long process, right? Like for months and months and months, I felt so much anger, for example, right? And it was, it was like hard to figure out what the anger was about. Was it anger towards my parents? Was it anger, anger towards myself?
0: I was mad at your parents. <laughs> I before know. I even knew about this. <laughs> just for being Korean parents, I was mad just at Just for them.
1: being Korean parents, yeah. Um, and I realized it was actually anger at myself, right? Because ultimately, it was all self-directed. Like, I hated myself for not protecting myself as a six-year-old. I hated myself. Yeah, but
0: that's a- irrational.
1: It's irrational, but it right. is so Powerful. true. Right. And you know why? It's because it gives me an element of control. Because if I take responsibility and accountability, that means I can also control what happens, And I finally connected those thoughts, and also realized that I had lived completely from my head and nothing else. Like all those medical and health issues that you uh, talked about before, yes, those are all real, but it was also my body's way of telegraphing to me, yo, you are really screwing up your body here and you're not listening to me. And he kept sending me those messages over and over again, but I was just not listening because there was nothing communicating my head to what was going on in my body and my heart.
0: And so over these different therapy sessions, you finally learn to love all sides of yourself, let it go, and you feel, I don't want to put words in your mouth, eh? I don't understand how this Hannah who's beaming and cute (laughs) and funny and wants to be alive and wants to help heal people. Yeah. You know, showed up from the place I person I saw a year ago.
1: I think it's it's kind of a uh, you know in VC or uh, finance world they talk about the J curve, right? It was somewhat of that. Like it was a lot of pain for many many months, and then at some point I kind of hit the curve of rising up. And it's self love is hard earned, and I think anybody who's done the healing work knows this it's not this instantaneous like veil lifting from your eyes and saying, oh, in fact, I love myself. (laughs) Um, It was, I devoted everything I had to it, to that process of healing. And the people that I worked with, and it took a village, right? It wasn't just a single therapist. I had multiple therapists um, with different modalities and trainings. Um, It took my uh, family's patients. um, Even if they weren't, with me on par with the road that I was taking they were actually still just around being passively supportive and that's really important Um, but yeah it was realizing that I had to make a choice right it was that choice that I misunderstood as life or death when I was losing money when I was lying when I was um, trying to decide you know whether to run away from this attacker or not Those were not the life and death choices. The real life and death choice is what I make every minute of every day today and saying, do I want to live this moment creating or destroying? And anything short of self-love is just destroying myself. And that's what I started feeling in my body. It wasn't a realization up here. It's what, what I felt through my body. And so talk therapy, while it's extremely helpful, I think has its limits. Um, There are many ways out there, um, some more novel than others right now, that really explores how do you unlock the trauma in your body? How do you release it? So it was a lot of body-oriented work that I did. And, you know, there are hours that I spent doing nothing but shaking because that's what my body needed.
0: And here you are now dedicated to healing.
1: Yeah, now working with you, dedicated to healing. Um, Yeah, you know, what I realized was, I mean, obviously Galaxy Gives um, is all about, um, you know, power to the people, right? Bringing power to the marginalized communities, which includes the formerly incarcerated people. But I think healing is a big component of that, not just in healing the individual trauma, but recognizing that we are our own healers there's inherent power dynamic that exists in the mental health field right now where you go into the closed door with a therapist who's much better trained than you typically and he's making some kind of judgment and you're always kind of reading his or her face thinking okay how crazy does he think i am It's actually not that, right? Like I, I have power within me to unlock all of that and more, to unlock the healing, to understand the trauma, to process the trauma, to live with gratitude, to um, get that joy back, to not look back and regret, to look forward. And so having gone through that process in, you know, really painful but also inspiring ways myself, I know that it's possible. Right? I'm not the exception to the story. I am the story that everybody has within them. And so my mission now is in thinking about you know how do you scale that? How do you make that happen for every single human being out there? Because transformation doesn't happen until we each change. I can't tell you to change. You've told me to meditate for how many years now?
0: <laughs> Too many.
1: Too many. And I didn't have a minute of meditation until I felt that change in me.
0: Uh, Well, you have to give me some credit because I did say one day you're going to pay it forward. Your life will be worth living and now you're going to start paying it forward and your life is worth living. And so I at least feel like I was smart about one thing I told you that day.
1: (laughs) You are absolutely right about it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, Hannah, thank you for sharing. That's quite a story. Uh, Harvard to the Ponzi to jail to to hear yeah uh, with a whole new you know huge runway ahead of yourself yeah uh and you know writing the next chapter which will be i think a joyous one and uh could it be happier to have you on our team
1: thank you so much